Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Now it's not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Trying to make his way home. Now, I don't know what Joan Osborne. 
in writing this song. It's definitely a, a catchy tune, for sure. Um, but despite her exact intent, those lyrics, I think, are, well, they're striking. Uh, they're striking because, maybe in a slightly um, offensive way, but in a real way, they, they capture uh, the radical content of the Christian faith. God has become one of us. Uh, the Nicene Creed, not the 90s reference, puts it like this. For us and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. God entered into our world and remained God, but became fully man in the person of Jesus. No other major religion even comes close to articulating something like this. In Islam, God is totally other and unapproachable. In Buddhism, there is no God. But as we reach nirvana, we come into harmony with all living things. And in maybe the most modern and prolific religion in our day, secular humanism, life is a random, meaningless accident of physics. And on and on and on. Christianity is undoubtedly unique in this way. This section of the book of Hebrews teaches, maybe more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible, why God became man. Why God became one of us in Jesus of Nazareth. So, let's recast real quick, recap the logic of Hebrews so far. Hebrews has taught us that Jesus is God's best and final word, that we should listen to him. He's greater by far. Than, than anything else or than anyone else, angels included. We looked at that last week. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Through Jesus, everything was made. Through Jesus, everything is sustained in this world. Through Jesus, our sins are atoned for. So, as we saw last week, we should pay close attention. We should listen to what we have heard through Jesus. To use theological categories, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, really tell us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. But then beginning in verse 5, and continuing through the end of chapter 2, what Tisa just read for us, we see that Jesus is man. He's fully human like us. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And we can have confidence in his work for us. So, so this morning... Let's just take a second here and let's ask, maybe you can just do it quietly in your hearts, let's ask the Holy Spirit to impress upon us why the incarnation, that's the word for Jesus becoming one of us, matters. Why it matters deeply to our lives right now. Listen, Jesus becoming a man affects your everyday existence. It affects your everyday existence. If, if your reputation has been harmed, if your reputation has been ruined, Jesus came to restore you. If you've been fearful and petrified of the future, Jesus came to redeem you. If you've felt isolated or abandoned or alone this week, Jesus came to help you. If you've been living under the long shadow of shame in your life, Jesus came to show you mercy. Listen, that's true for you today no matter who you are, no matter what you've experienced in your life. And, and so I want us to look to the scriptures here to answer the question, why? Why did Jesus become one of us? And what does it mean for our lives now? Hebrews chapter 2 gives us at least four reasons. There's probably more, but I'm going to stop 
and restrain myself and stop it for four reasons why Jesus became one of us. Let's go through them together, okay? First, Jesus became man in order to restore our dignity. He became man in order to restore our dignity. The author continues there in verse 5 by arguing again that Jesus is greater than angels. Why? Verse 5, because it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And then what he does is something he does all through this book. He quotes from the Old Testament. And what he quotes here in verse 6 is Psalm 8. You might know that, you might not know that, but, but Psalm 8 is itself a poetic reflection on Genesis 1. And Psalm 8 is saying that mankind, men and women, although right now seemingly less glorious than, say, angels, are one day going to reign over this world. That's what the author means when he quotes Psalm 8, look what verse 7 says, you've crowned him, that's man, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's what Genesis teaches. God made mankind in his image. No other aspect of creation can claim to be made in God's image. He made us with honor and, and with dignity and with glory. He made mankind to have, and this is an important word in the Bible, dominion. Dominion over his world. This week, uh, my son Nate did a school project where he had to study uh, an animal. And the animal Nate drew to study is called the panther chameleon. Have you ever heard of a panther chameleon? I haven't either. They sound really cool. They don't seem that cool, actually. They're, they're only in a very small part of the country of Madagascar. And they're, they're actually small lizards. And as I kind of watched Nate do his project and, and helped him a little bit with his project, one of the things he had to list was the taxonomy of the panther chameleon. And frankly, it was a pretty absurd level of detail that he had to go through. He was talking about the kingdom and the phylus and the genus and the species and blah, 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 blah. And on and on it went. And, and there's a lot of information out there on panther chameleons, which shocked me because I've never heard of a panther chameleon. And, and, you know, as I was thinking about this text, I thought, you know, that's, that's one of many aspects of how we have dominion over the world. When Adam, in Genesis 2, names the animals, he, he's a taxonomist. The first taxonomist in Genesis 2 is an aspect of mankind's rule and reign under God over the rest of creation. That's what Psalm 8 is about. But, when mankind rebelled against God and sin came into the world, a part of our dignity was lost. We're still made in God's image. But the image is, is marred. So we don't rule well over all of creation. In fact, creation is in open conflict with us. How else do we explain like mosquitoes, for example? Right? So our dignity has been tainted. Uh, and, and our dominion has been taken away. And now what the author of Hebrews does is he takes Psalm 8, which is a theological reflection on man's dignity, and he applies it specifically to one person, to Jesus. Look at what he says, verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now, what does that mean? This is very condensed and sometimes difficult to understand. I, I realize that. Very simply put, what this means is that Jesus came to restore the dignity that God gave men and women in creation. And, and he did this by becoming a man. By becoming 
every one of us. In fact, Jesus was the perfect man. He was the human par excellence. And Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus, you see, was what God always intended you and I, men and women, to be. He was a human being living in perfect fellowship with his Father in heaven. And Jesus, because he lived that kind of life, because he was the perfect man, because he treated God's world with perfect justice and respect, God crowns, we read, with glory and honor. So Jesus earns back the dignity that we lost through sin. You know, just practically, one of the grossest effects of sin in this world is that it causes us to devalue one another. It causes us to disgrace one another, doesn't it? Rather than dignify one another. And all of us, at some point or other in our life, are going to experience that and probably also are going to sin against another by devaluing and not dignifying them. Maybe, maybe you've been a victim of that. Maybe you've been a victim of racism. That's undoubtedly one of the most significant ways that humans devalue and disgrace one another. Someone made a racist joke at you or, or has called you a racist name. Maybe you've been overlooked or hurt because of the color of your skin. Maybe you've been a victim of sexism. As a woman, you've been maligned and mistreated and ignored because of your gender. Maybe you just have your dignity taken away from one of the million ways that we can verbally barrage one another, that we can cut each other down, that we can steal one another's humanity. The message of gospel, God becoming one of us, tells us that through Jesus, our dignity is restored. The gospel tells us that there is going to come a day in God's new world when we will be at peace, when there will be perfect shalom, when all things will be in subjection to mankind, when we will reign with Jesus over this world in glorious harmony. This past week was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. On Monday, we remember Dr. King, and every Monday, uh, every Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I read his I Have a Dream speech, and he summarizes the, the desire for human dignity in God's future world wonderfully. Listen to what Dr. King famously says. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Dr. King's vision aligns with the vision of the kingdom of God. Jesus came. He became one of us to restore our dignity. A second reason Hebrews tells us Jesus became man is in order to give us a family. Jesus became man in order to give us a family. Look, look starting in verse 10. At all the family language, verse 10, we read that uh, Jesus, God sent Jesus to, to bring many sons to glory. Then, verse 11, he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, Jesus' people, all have the same origin. They're from the same family. Then again in verse 11, that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then to add to the point, the author quotes again a couple of times from the Old Testament to make the same point. I will tell your name to my brothers, verse 12. And then behold, I am the children God has given me, verse 13. What these verses are getting at is that Jesus Christ became one of us so that we could join his family. He was, he was made like us in every way. He was our truly human brother so that he could be our spiritual relative. 
That's part of the wonderful doctrine of adoption. God is our Father who loves us, whom we can call Abba through our union in faith with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is our brother. We are, as Romans says, co-heirs with Jesus. And so everything that belongs to him also belongs to us. But on top of that, what I found even more poignant and even more powerful this week as I was reflecting on this is if you look at the scripture text there again, you'll notice that Jesus, Jesus proudly, did you catch that? Jesus proudly presents us to his father and as his brothers and sisters. Verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Have you ever had an experience when you felt ashamed of your family? I've had experiences like that, and I'm sure my family's had experiences like that because of things I have done, but often growing up, one of my brothers would get in trouble. It was never me, it was always them. And uh, when they would get in trouble, uh, because my dad was a pastor and we were in a relatively small town, sometimes the reputation that not me, but my brothers had, would proceed. And I can remember multiple experiences where I, I thought to myself, man, I've got to get away from these guys. It's, it's, it's a feeling of, of shame. A feeling of like, ugh, I don't know if I want to be known to, know, to, to be related to that guy. I don't, I don't know if I want to be connected to them. Probably all of us have felt that way at some point or another. We've been ashamed of our families. We've been ashamed of where we come from. And, and I think we often think that that's how Jesus feels about us. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, Jesus loves me, but, but barely. And Jesus actually feels really ashamed of me when I've had a really rough week spiritually, when I've done something really, really bad, when I've failed in a pretty public and significant way. Our human nature believes that Jesus is embarrassed by our ongoing failures and, and foibles. But Hebrews says that's actually not the case at all. In fact, that's a lie of the evil one, if you believe it. The greatest imaginable thing is true. Jesus loves who we are in Him. Do you believe that? Jesus loves who we are in Him. Jesus delights in who He is making you to be. Jesus is not ashamed of you. How can that be? I mean, we're often ashamed of ourselves. Our, our simple habits and thoughts and actions are, in some ways, shameful. And so many of us, we, we live under this cloud of believing that God is, well, He's accepted me, but he's kind of embarrassed by me. No. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we do. First John 3, 1. Your identity before God and before others and before yourself is not first in the shame of your sin. Jesus has taken that away. That's why he became a man. Your identity before God and before others and before yourself is first your belovedness. You're beloved by your father. And you're beloved by Jesus, your older brother. God doesn't have any black sheep. God doesn't have any black sheep in his family. You're not a black sheep. Because Jesus died to bring you into the family of God. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister because he loves you. That's why he came. Third, Jesus became a man in order to release us from death's bondage. 
verse 14. Verse 14 sort of summarizes what we've seen so far and then builds on it. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That is, he became truly human in every way. Why? In order that, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus become a man? To destroy the devil. And to destroy the power of death that enslaves us. Jesus came to release us from death's bondage. There's a couple of things you should get here. This gets us close to the central core of our Christian faith. The first thing that this verse teaches us is that the wages of sin is death. What sin earns, what sin deserves is death. That's very clear in the scriptures. And when I use the word death, both physical death and spiritual death are knit. Death puts us in lifelong bondage. Death enslaves us because of our sin. If you read in the early story of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin against God and they're, they're cast out of the Garden of Eden, remember, east of Eden, and the way back into Eden is barred by an angel, all that is, is symbolic of spiritual death, which is, in its essence, separation from God, who is the source and the fountain of everything that is good. So under sin's canopy, we cannot escape physical and spiritual death. Death casts a shadow over all of life. Death hovers like a specter over every dimension of the world. Death blights the whole of existence, like when you get something in your lawn that destroys all the grass. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Death is the final enemy, and we cannot escape it. But secondly, this verse teaches that Jesus Christ delivers us. He delivers us out of death's grip. How does he do it? The verse is very clear. Jesus does this book, verse 14, through death. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Here's the good news. Jesus identified with us entirely as a human so that he could take death's penalty as a man for men. The commentator Philip Hughes in his book on Hebrews, he writes this, listen to what he says, only the assumption of human nature could qualify Jesus to fulfill his function of redeemer, for his human nature fitted him to suffer and die as man for men, that is, vicariously, to bear man's punishment and die by man's death on the cross. What that means is death can only be undone through death. Death dies in the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus became a man so that he could die for men. The purpose of his birth was his death. And the love of God for us is shown in that Jesus was pleased to come to this world and the Father was pleased to send his perfect Son to free us from the bondage of death and to defeat our great enemy, the devil, by dying himself as a substitute for us, as a sacrifice for us. Remember uh, the movie The Matrix, another 90s movie. I'm on fire with the 90s references today. Uh, the Matrix is a, a, a movie about uh, humanity being enslaved. 
It's been enslaved by uh, these massive computer robots, right, who some years in the past had taken humanity out. And what they've done is they've created this computer program that humans live in that's called the Matrix. But none of the humans in the Matrix know that they're in the Matrix. They think what they're in is reality. But there's this one guy named Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, uh, who's the one. He's, he's able to enter the Matrix and to stand against the enemy and, and defeat him. And, and in doing so, he, he rescues all of humanity through his victory. He is the champion. He's the champion of the story. When the book of Hebrews here calls Jesus our pioneer, another translation for that is he's our champion. Jesus has entered into our story to release us from bondage to death and from bondage of sin when we could never do it on our own. That's what he's done. He's championed over death for us in his death and in his resurrection. He's freed us out of bondage. So Jesus became a man first to restore our dignity. Secondly, Jesus became a man to, to bring us into his family. And then thirdly, to release us from the bondage to death. Finally, Jesus became a man, verse 16, 17, and 18, in order to become our merciful high priest. Hebrews talks a ton about this. We're going to get more into this later on. But for now, let me just say this. Jesus became like us so he can help us. So he can help us specifically when we are tempted. Jesus is called the high priest there in verse 17. It's the first time of 17 uses of that word in Hebrews. And, and verse 18 makes the point that Jesus' humanity is our high priest. It means that he really does know what it's like to be us. I, I wonder, let's just think about that for a minute. God in Jesus knows what it's like to be us, specifically in our weakness. Specifically in our struggle. Specifically when we're in temptation. People, um, people who share common stories relate well to one another. Specifically, people who share common stories of pain relate well to one another. That's one of the reasons why AA has been such a successful treatment and therapy program over the years. It's because you come in and you admit before other men who have poor women who have the same struggle, I'm Luke and I'm an alcoholic, right? And, and as you hear other people share a common story of pain through identification and through empathy with them, you're able to receive help. But there's many other ways in which that's true. If you're a child of divorce, you have something in common with other children of divorce. If you're adopted and you've never known your biological parents, you have something in common with others who are adopted and don't know their biological parents. And it goes on and on and on and on. Jesus shares a common story with us. Jesus took on our flesh and blood. That means he had a body and still has a body, by the way. But when he had a body before it was raised from the dead, he got hungry. He got tired. He got sick. Jesus could have gotten COVID. I'm pretty sure. And, and Jesus experienced the full range of human feelings and, and sensibilities. That's, Hebrews says, what qualifies him to be our high priest. He's like us. He understands us. God in Jesus is not distant from us or unlike us. No, he stands with us. In Jesus, God has made solidarity with you. Johnny Cash, um, the late Johnny Cash, has a, a song called The Man in Black. You know about Johnny Cash, he always wore black. Every
he wrote a song saying why. Listen to what he writes. This is Johnny Cash. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black. Why you never see bright colors on my back. And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone? Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on. I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. I wear it for the prisoner who is, has long paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the times. Johnny Cash is saying that he wore black in an act of solidarity with the hurting, with the victim, with the oppressed. Jesus is the real man in black. Jesus has been tempted like we're tempted, but he's come out victorious. And in the areas of our lives where temptation defeats us, Jesus comes and helps as a high priest. In fact, it's precisely because we've been defeated that we need the assistance of our champion. That we need the assistance of our pioneer, of, of our redeemer. Listen, because Jesus was a man, he can really personally, experientially help you. He can really help you when you're tempted. He can really help you when you're undergoing trial. When you're tempted to look at that image on the computer. Jesus understands that moment. Because he was tempted in a similar way. And he resisted. And you can resist in him. When you're tempted to say that cutting word about your coworker, Jesus understands. And because he resisted, you can resist in him. When you're tempted to be bitter and to think, my marriage is never going to be healthy. I'll be happier on my own. Jesus understands. And because he resisted, you can resist that temptation in him. When you're tempted to think, if I buy that thing, or if I go on that trip, or if I have that experience, then I'll be happy. Jesus understands. Because he was tempted. And he resisted. And you too can resist in him. Jesus understands you and can help you. Because he knows what it's like to be us. And more than that, he's succeeded where we constantly think. He knows the full force of temptation in a way that those who struggle and fail can never know. It's, it's sort of like if you try to run a marathon. If I, right now, went to try to run a marathon, Marianne's going to disagree. I'm thinking I'll go two miles. She's like, half a right? Before I make it, I'm for sure no more than two and a half miles running. And uh, then I'm going to wipe out, right? I, I can never understand what it's like to be on mile 19. But to be on mile 23, because I bowed out much earlier. Jesus completed the race. He understands the pain and the struggle of temptation, even beyond what we understand. That's, that's why he came. That's how much he loves us. When you're tempted, Jesus is actually closer to you, not farther away, as our great and merciful high priest. What if God is one of us? And the story of this world is that God did become one of us in Jesus of Nazareth. He entered into our sin-ravaged world, and he brought healing. As C.S. Lewis has said, the Son of God was made man that we might become sons and daughters of God. Paul, what a Savior he is. Isn't Jesus worth listening? Isn't Jesus worth listening to? Isn't he worth all? Let's pray. Thank you, God, uh, that you have sent Jesus to become one of us, that he is our champion that he is the pioneer and founder of our salvation, that he has become for us a merciful and faithful high priest 
in your service, God, that he's made propitiation for our sins and that now he can identify with us and understand what it's like to be us and can help us when we need help. Thank you, Jesus, that you restore our dignity. Thank you that you make us a part of your family. We give you praise and glory. Help us to believe that these things are true. We pray it together this morning in Christ's name. Amen.